While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you, and what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favour in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Azirus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? And as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance of the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Good evening, everyone. It struck me uh, that providentially... Uh, as I was preparing this, thinking about the Jewish people in the city of Susa, kind of despairing and wondering where on earth their help was going to come from. Uh, at this morning, we should here be thinking about Psalm 13 and thinking about how it is to lament, um, how it is to cry out to the Lord, not knowing what is going on and... Um, uh, yet knowing that he is sovereign, he is good, that help will come, but still being unaware of what is happening. Uh, so I was thinking about the Jewish, Jewish people back in Esther's day uh, as, I was, as I was thinking about this, this passage. So let me just pray for us before we start, and, uh, and we'll look, we'll dive into Esther 7, which is a busy chapter. It's a little chapter, but it's a busy chapter, so we'll try and cover as much as we can. Oh Lord God, we know that you love to build us up through the reading of your word. We, we want to ask, ask you humbly now that uh, by your Spirit's help, you will help us to understand this chapter, understand um, more about what you want us to know from your word. Uh, please give us ears to hear, eyes to see your, your sovereign, divine work in this world. Um, we need your help. Um, but we know that you hear and you love to give it to us. So please, in Jesus' name, help us now. Amen. Amen. Well, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. 
Well, that is what Haman's wife and his friends said. Now, a day earlier, they had advised him to hang Mordecai. Now they're predicting a very different outcome. And as these cheery words were ringing in Haman's ears, we're told at the end of chapter 6, as John just read, that, that Haman is rushed away by the king's eunuchs to attend the second day of feasting with King Ahasuerus and Queen Esther. Even as he leaves his house, he's surely going to pass under the, the ludicrously tall gallows, um, which probably isn't the gallows that we think of with a, with a noose, but like a stake from the ground. Um, yeah, this ludicrously tall stake that he's prepared for Mordecai. He's just going to pass under the shadow of that as the, as the eunuchs are leading him away to the feast. Now, I wonder, I've been pondering over this, did Haman have any idea of what was unfolding? It's a far cry, isn't it, from the day before when, full with pride, he gladly accepted the whining and dining from the royals and then later boasted of his own splendor, his own riches and honors to, to his family and friends around him. Maybe his wife's uplifting words had left him feeling a little uneasy. Or perhaps he was beginning to make some kind of plan B for how to deal with Mordecai. Perhaps he consoled himself with the fact that he alone, apart from the king, was the only one to be honored with being at this feast. He still got the king's ear. He still got the queen's favor. Or so he thinks. Because he, he has no idea, does he, that Esther is one of the Jewish people to be destroyed under his edict. He has no idea that the Lord has raised her up for the very purpose of exposing his scheme on this very day. But he soon finds out. Within the space of 24 hours, he goes from uh, self-exaltation and wickedly planning the unjust execution of his enemy to falling, just as his wife predicted. And at the end of chapter 7, as we just read, being hung from his own stake. What went wrong for Haman, we might ask? Maybe he asked himself what, what went wrong as he's being led away. Well, actually, nothing, nothing went wrong. Haman received exactly the just judgment that he deserved. The self-exalting pride of Haman that fueled his hatred of Mordecai and drove him to, to plan the annihilation of not just Mordecai, but nearly all the Jew, Jews in the world, well, that would never be allowed to be victorious. The Lord God would see to it that that wouldn't come to pass. In fact, the Lord would use the whole unfolding story as a reminder for centuries to come in the future that the unseen God was still at work in the Persian Empire, whether people acknowledged him or not. And that he would never, ever abandon his people. And so the reversal of fortunes that started in chapter 6 picks up pace now in chapter 7. As we see, well, we see many things, but we see particularly the Lord saving his people through his chosen mediator. And we see the Lord bringing just judgment on those who oppose them. Firstly, let's see the Lord saving his people through his chosen mediator. The feast 
appears to pass in a similar way to the previous day, doesn't it, at first? It culminates again with drinking, and the king then again asks Esther whether, uh, what is her wish and request. But yesterday, she, she postponed them for another day. She said, please come back, and then I'll tell you. But today, she speaks up. Firstly, let's not forget that this is going to take tremendous courage from Esther. She's the queen, yes, but let's be under no illusion that in the eyes of the king and in the eyes of the empire, she's only as powerful as he, the king, allows her to be. It's only a few weeks since we looked at what happened to Vashti when she displeased the king. What's more, it's only five days just five days since Esther was urged by Mordecai to act. As far as we know, nobody else has any idea that she's a Jew. The king certainly doesn't. And by speaking out now, she is effectively, she'll be effectively exposing her heritage to the king and she could be very quickly disposed of. So she could keep, keep quiet. But at great risk to herself and Therefore, with great humility, she presses on with the plan. If I perish, I perish, as she said in chapter 4. And so in verse 3 of chapter 7, as we've read tonight, if I have found favour in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request. For we've been sold and, and note here how she absolutely ties herself with the Jews. We have been sold, I and my people. That's incredibly brave. As part of the palace, she could detach herself, she could align herself with the empire, a queen of the empire as well. But she's effectively telling the king to his face that she is bound to the Jewish people. Now Esther doesn't know which way it's going to go at this point. God does. He always, throughout history, raises up a mediator at exactly the right time for his people. And Mordecai was, exactly, was absolutely right in chapter 4. Relief and deliverance would surely rise for the Jews from some place. But there was no guarantee for Mordecai and Esther that it was going to be through her. All they could do was trust that he would save his people in one way or another and hope that Esther would be the, the means by which he did that. Well, Esther cleverly appeals to the king's pride um, in, uh, in verse 4 still uh, by saying that she wouldn't ordinarily trouble him about a matter of this, uh, of this instance. Um, if, if they'd simply been sold as slaves. But since they've all been uh, sold to be annihilated, then that's, that's a different story. Effectively, he's going to lose out on person power in his kingdom. So she appeals to him on that note. The king appears to have forgotten that he agreed to the edict in the first place in chapter 3, uh, which again shows the laughable reality of his power. The king of the world a tyrant who gives all the decisions to other people. But nevertheless, he's outraged. Who has dared to do this, he says. And you can almost feel Hamix, Hamix, Haman's stomach 
dropping from the inside of him, can't you? As Esther says his name, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Uh, maybe Haman's had some bad dinner parties, but this is like top of the list, isn't it? He was terrified, verse 6. And why wouldn't he be? He has just been outed in front of the king of the world. So Esther has spoken on behalf of the people. The king is furious, and all that is left is for um, the just judgment to be fulfilled, verses 7 to 10. But even this plays out in in quite a comedic fashion, doesn't it? The king rises in his anger and, and goes to pace around the garden, and in desperation and with nowhere else to turn, Haman throws himself down in front of, or possibly even onto, the queen to beg for his life. There's a poetic irony here in that he's fallen before Mordecai, as his wife's already said. He's now falling before Esther. When all along his own pride and rage had been stoked by the fact that Mordecai wouldn't fall in front of him or bow before him. But even Haman's attempts to save himself are misinterpreted by the drunk king who who thinks that he's trying to assault Esther. And remember, nobody is allowed to approach any of the king's women. And there is nothing Haman can do now to save himself. Less than 24 hours earlier, it might have appeared to everybody, including Haman, that he had the upper hand. He was the top dog in the kingdom, other than the king. But this chapter shows us exactly who's been in control the whole time. Because... Haman had pitted himself against God's people and he'd set out to destroy them, all of them. That was his plan. And in doing so, he had pitted himself against the Lord God himself. Nothing, nothing will thwart or undermine the Lord's promise to save himself, sorry, to save himself, his people, for his own glory. If Haman had had any knowledge of God's word, which he didn't, being not from God's people. Um, but if he had, he might have known any of the Proverbs. But Proverbs 11, verse 5 says, The righteousness of the blameless keeps his way straight, but the wicked falls by his own wickedness. And so it comes to pass with the wicked Haman. And the judgment was so swift and decisive, wasn't it? His head is covered. And as soon as the king hears about the stake, he, he commands him to be hanged from it. In another twist of divine providence, the stake that he'd prepared for the humiliation of Mordecai becomes the very place where Haman's judgment is carried out and the king's wrath is abated, as we read in verse 10. Let's just spend a minute considering the stake, as gruesome as it might be, but it's, it's worth us thinking through this. A stake in those days was a way of showing victory over your enemies in ancient times. To hang your enemy from a stake in the ground. Usually they would be dead first. But it was a form of humiliation and a a warning to everyone looking on. Haman, of course, in his pride and and listening to his wife and, and friends, has taken it to another level and built a ludicrously tall stake. He wasn't just going for any kind of normal stake height, whatever that might be, but it's 22 metres high. That is, that's 
mind-blowing. It's ludicrous. I was trying to find some comparisons, and it's, yeah, it's, well, you Google what's 22 meters, and you get all sorts of stuff. But um, apparently rugby posts, the minimum height for a rugby post is 16 meters. So we were up on Sudley Field yesterday looking at the rugby posts there and thinking, wow, that's, if that's 16 meters, then 22 meters is, is high. I asked Ethan, because um, I couldn't find any pictures, so I asked Ethan to draw me a picture to scale. So where are we? There we are. There's little people at the bottom, and there's Heyman at the top. Um, that's a big old stake, isn't it? It's terrible. It's terrible, but in, in those days, it was a way to humiliate your enemies and to show that you were victorious over them. Why would he make it so high? Simply because Haman wanted a very public humiliation for Mordecai. The height of that stake would ensure that anyone in the vicinity will see Mordecai hanging there. Anyone looking on will be in no doubt, no doubt as to who's victorious. And the Jews especially will look up at Mordecai and, and know that their death is imminent. Haman's carried this out on Mordecai. The edict is out for us. This is, our, this is our destiny, our future. But instead, with the divine twist, instead of it being a symbol of dread and threat, in an incredible reversal, it becomes a sign that their enemy has been defeated. Haman, the wicked Haman, has fallen by his own wickedness, to quote Proverbs 11. God's people would be reminded again that that his judgment comes at exactly the right time to those who oppose him. He would never leave or abandon them. Now, the book of Esther doesn't end at chapter 7, as you can probably see looking down. There is more unresolved work to be done to finally end the threat of annihilation to the Jews. But Haman, the power behind the destruction, is dead. And the reversal now is in full swing, as we will see in future weeks. But what comfort can we take here and now in, in Liverpool in 2023? Clearly, we don't live in 5th century BC Persia. But despite the multiple cultural differences, we might not find everything entirely dissimilar. We've said before through this series that God is, is never once mentioned in this book. But he's clearly, clearly at work. The Persian Empire was, uh, sorry, I just remembered, I was meant to do that. Okay. Uh, the Persian Empire was a world that by and large had no time at all for the God of Israel. And if Mordecai and Esther are anything to go by, it seems that even the Jews were cautious about re revealing their identity, uh, to say that they were part of God's people, to say that they were Jewish. That doesn't sound too dissimilar to today, does it? We live in a world that has largely forgotten or doesn't know or doesn't care about the Lord God. God appears silent or sorry, irrelevant to most people. He might even feel silent to us. Either personally, if we feel like prayers are going unanswered or in the culture around us as it seemingly becomes increasingly hard to speak from a Christian viewpoint. But if Esther 7 teaches us anything is that at 
um, is that at times where God is apparently silent, he's always, he's always at work bringing about his good plans for his people in ways in which we just don't realize. If for us evil or wickedness or the effects of those things seem close at hand as we look to what's going on in the outside world or feel it personally, we can take confidence as we look at Esther 7 to see that they will never ever have final victory. The Lord God is at work and has promised to keep his people and make everything right. He will judge everyone fairly and we can trust his timing in that. How do we know though? Can we be sure of it? Well, the Bible repeatedly promises and, and shows us this time and again, but of course there is nowhere that we see his intervention and victory so clearly as uh, upon the cross of Christ. Now in es es Esther chapter seven, there's almost too many hints and foreshadows of Jesus to mention. Um, maybe you saw some of them as we were reading it and, 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 and briefly going through it, but just for now, let us reconsider again how the Lord saves his people through his chosen mediator. There's no doubt that Queen Esther was brave. Her, her beauty shines through as she risks her life in binding herself with her people, pleading for her life and their lives before the king. It was a, really a courageous thing to do, and it was how the Lord saved his people at that time. But Jesus' beauty eclipses this. So he not only risks his life, but gives his life on behalf of his people. A people that had even abandoned him. Esther was in the throne room. She could have aligned herself with the empire, but Jesus left the throne room of heaven and bound himself to his people. He prayed in fear before his father, asking that if there be any other way, it would be given. But resolved, not with the words, if I perish, but with the words, I will perish. Your will be done. Haman, in his wickedness, had planned the utter humiliation of Mordecai. But the Lord saw to it that the very stake by which he intended Mordecai's death became his own stake of judgment. And as he died, the wrath of the king abated. The evil scheme of Haman was used by the Lord to be the way in which the deliverance from the Jews began. And then in, in glorious contrast, as the Pharisees and evil men plotted for the death of Jesus, and as they thought that they had silenced him forever, they unwittingly brought about the means in which God had intended them all along for the rescue of his people. The defeat of Christ by Satan and sinful men was, in fact, Christ's victory over Satan and sin. And when, as he died, taking the judgment of the world, his father's wrath was abated. So if the Jews could look upon Haman and rejoice, all who trust in Christ can look upon his cross and rejoice that the Lord's plans will never be thwarted. Death is defeated, not just Haman. Death is defeated. In Christ we live. And by this we know that he's never going to abandon us. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, your 
victory is sure and certain. From the creation of the world, you've been preparing and calling yourself a kingdom of people who you will never, ever abandon. And we are humbled to be part of that kingdom. Lord, we know that we do nothing to earn or deserve a part in your kingdom, but it is wholly by your grace and mercy and your forgiveness as we look upon Jesus on the cross who took the wrath that was deserved for us, he took it upon himself. Lord, when we're tempted to despair if you seem far off or when we can't understand what's happening in the world around us, please help us to look time and again at your word and see how you save your people. You raised up Esther, Lord, to a position where she could mediate for your people and you defeated Haman, the enemy of your people. But help us to see even more clearly how you once and for all defeated sin and death on the cross and have brought us from death to life in Christ. Help us as we lament. Help us as we sing with joy. Help us as we walk alongside one another to keep trusting your promises to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.